Hi, I'm Anna-Claire Harper, and you're listening to The Return, property and investment podcast, sharing insights and information on key topics from real estate technology to sustainability. Feel free to get in touch or follow recent news by connecting on LinkedIn, Anna-Claire Harper. Hi, and welcome to The Return, property and investment podcast. I'm Anna, and I'm delighted to be joined by Liz Peace, CBE, who is former chief executive of the British Property Federation, where she played a significant role in the creation of the UK's real estate investment trust structure. She was awarded a CBE in 2008 for services to the property industry. And she now has a non-executive portfolio career, including NED roles at the Howard de Walden Estates and the Connected Places Catapults. She's chairman at the GLA's Old Oak and Park Royal Development Corporation and the University of Cambridge Board. She's also chair of the Church's Conservation Trust, responsible for 357 redundant Church of England churches, and of Real Estate Balance, a campaigning organisation working to improve diversity and inclusion in the real estate industry, cause I believe in strongly. So welcome to the podcast, Liz, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. I'm looking forward to it. So we spoke first through a housing policy paper that I've mentioned on some other episodes. And we got talking about energy efficiency, energy performance, the problem of retrofit and so on. And I thought you'd have some fascinating insight on the politics of improving energy efficiency and reducing carbon emissions in real estate generally and housing specifically with all of your experience, public and private sector. So I guess it would be great to start it by asking how you see the political landscape influencing the drive towards more energy efficient properties. Right. Gosh, that that's quite a big question. We could probably fill the uh, start start with. Yeah. Do <laughs> <laughs> what that's 20 minutes. The politics around this. Yes. I mean, I think sustainability, you know, sort of drifts in and out of the sort of political spectrum, depending on what else is actually happening. I do think we have actually reached a point now where politically it cannot be ignored. You know, back in the early noughties, it was a big thing. And then it all got sort of dumped during the global financial crisis, then sort of came back again in the teens, as it were. And now I think it has really reached a point where too many people understand just how important it is for it to be ignored politically. So then the next problem is what do you actually do about it? And of course, you know, politicians only have so much bandwidth, they only have so much resource at their disposal. So at the moment, you know, I get the impression they're trying to make it sound as if there's an awful lot being done, but there's not actually enough being done in terms of actual material difference. So there's lots of warm words, but actually practical support to actually make things happen. I just don't think there's enough of that. And I think in many ways, that's going to be up to the real estate industry to seize the initiative themselves and do that. And for lots of very good reasons, I think the real estate industry should do that because otherwise we are a very, very publicly visible producer of carbon, consumer of energy. We need to take care of our own own houses, house or buildings or whatever, because I don't think government will do it for us. Uh Well, we'll move on to the role of the industry in a moment. But before that, what do you think is stopping and getting in the way of that? What are the barriers to reducing carbon emissions in the housing sector and any thoughts you have on how they can be overcome? Well, I mean, the problem is, you know, our housing sector is incredibly diffuse and you have a sort of massive mixture of home ownership, rented homes, social housing, different typologies. You know, there's a big difference between a sort of little detached or a little sort of semi-detached box 
and a 42-storey apartment block. In the whole sort of renting world, you have the issue of landlord and tenant and how you actually get landlord and tenant actually aligned. And there's just an awful lot of it. You know, so it's very easy, I think, to overwhelm people with the sheer scale of what needs to be done to actually deal with this incredibly diffuse, very varied, and an awful lot of it, housing stock. So I think it's a bit sort of rabbits in headlights, you know, oh my God, how are we going to solve that? It's going to take billions, therefore we don't. So we footle around the, you know, the various bodies involved in this footle around the edges of trying to deal with it without actually trying to find some key, big, quick win ways of actually achieving what we need to achieve. Yeah, completely agree. And it's almost like the elephant is so big that people can't see how to break exactly. it down. But actually, that, that knowledge gap, there's a gap in general knowledge around what to do. But then there's the property specific, because of what you said, every property is so different. And there's so many different typologies and locations, and those all influence what should be done. Per I property. mean, if you look at some of our places, our towns, you know, I mean, I, I come from Birmingham, I spend a lot of time in the north of England. There's a huge sort of number, those rows of sort of terraced houses. Well, actually, even in London, look at the sort of Victorian Edwardian suburbs of those, you know, those huge rows of what cannot possibly be very energy efficient houses. How do you deal with the physical challenge of that? How do you deal with the sort of philosophical people challenge of that? You know, getting every one of those people in that row of, let's say, 50 terraced houses, you know, to agree they need to do something. It's a big sort of psychological popular challenge. Which brings me nicely on to <laughs> the next question, really. What role do you think that the government should play in, even if it is just in terms of incentivizing property owners, whether they be homeowners or landlords, to actually invest in energy efficiency improvement? Well, I think one of the key areas, and this is something I campaigned on, you know, back in my days in the British Property Federation, is to get a far greater sort of degree of simplicity in the how you measure energy. Let's focus very much on energy for the moment. You know, how do you actually measure energy efficiency and therefore carbon emissions? There is far too sort of diverse a spectrum of ways of doing this, far too many different benchmarks. You know, I could tot up all the different ones which I looked at. Where is the government leadership in this, in actually saying, we're going to keep this as simple as we possibly can? And by the way, they've probably oversimplified it with EPCs because we all know how you know limited value those are. But how can we actually have one way of doing this which everybody can actually sign up to? And I used to say, if you took the financial services world or the accountancy profession, there is one way of setting out accounts. And that's how everybody has to do them in order that every company can be compared properly and you can see whether it's actually going bust or not doesn't always work, of course, but, you know, in theory, in theory it does. Why is it so difficult not to have a standardised approach to how you measure the facets of sustainability, and particularly energy? And everybody has to report against exactly the same things so that you can actually keep it simple and straightforward. I never quite understood why government couldn't actually do that. That's the leadership role. Set the parameters. This is what you need to do. Now, other people get out there and show us how you're going to do it. Yeah. Oh, that is a brilliant, brilliant answer. And I can tell you, so I did my domestic energy assessor training quite recently so that I could better understand, you know, that what goes into versus what mm. comes out of an EPC. Because to your point, you know, it's it is the benchmark we use currently and everybody knows that it's imperfect. But in what ways is it imperfect? Well, I can tell you. <laughs> we'll have to do another podcast on that. But and I think just to interrupt you, what one of the other things, and this is particularly relevant, I think, in commercial buildings, 
assessments, EPCs, or looking at your BRIAM assessment or whatever you do when you build a building. That is part of it, but actually the operational energy. And we could never get government to see, when I in my lobbying days, we could never get government to see that operational energy consumption and having a sensible and agreed way of measuring that. So they have display energy certificates for public buildings. Why shouldn't every building have a display energy certificate? This is what it uses on a day-to-day basis. This is its rating. But they didn't want that. But, you know, that just seems such an obvious way to get people focused on that is an inefficient building, that's an efficient building. What's the difference? How do we turn one into the other? Yeah. So moving on from national government, what role do local councils and also communities play in reducing emissions in housing and in real estate more broadly? And how can they be supported, do you think? Well, yes, I mean, I am quite a strong believer in a degree of sort of local autonomy. I think there is a role for central government, just talked about that. I think central government should be setting the policy and the the sort of measurement parameters, the benchmarks, the things that you need to prescribe centrally because it wastes an awful lot of time to try and redo it locally. But then actually, when you look at the sheer scale of what we need to do, it's got to be tackled locally, hasn't it? And in a way, the whole government sort of devolution agenda recognises that so many things that have to be tackled locally. The trouble is, local authorities now, you know, beset by so many challenges, so many difficulties, lack of funds. So some are probably doing it a lot better than others. You know, some are actually reaching out to people who can help them find innovative solutions. I mean, one of the things we do in the Connected Places Catapult is work with local authorities, not just on energy, but on a whole range of issues around how to harness technology to be better, to be more efficient. But there's still got to be sort of some element of a sort of helpful framework or else how many local authorities are there? 350 or something? You know, everyone will go off and reinvent the wheel. What a waste of resource. You know, finding a way of actually looking at what works and then promoting it so others can sort of pick it off the shelf and say, yep, we've seen that works in Salford or wherever, we'll do it here. You know, so there does need to be some sort of pulling together of that. And I think, you know, in local authority terms, there's a lot of barriers to overcome because they're worried at the moment about so many other things. You know, how do they meet their social services bill? How do they look after education? You know, all the other things they are trying to do. So it's going to be quite an uphill challenge. So I'm guessing, and I don't have sort of first-hand experience of this, you probably have more than I do, Anna, but you know, actually finding the exemplars, working with a few who could do it, show it can be done. It's a bit like you mentioned the elephant earlier. You know, this is eating the elephant. You do it in bits. So you do it with one or two, show that it can work, talk about it, publicise it, you know, get people like the local government association, the local government press to talk about it, show others what could be done. And, you know, use bodies like the Connected Places Catapult who can help in that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I completely agree with you that it needs to be a kind of place-based approach because it is a place-based issue fundamentally. And there's a danger really, I guess, since I've started really focusing in on this space, there's a danger that, you know, over time, let's say, let's say someone's been focusing on this for 12 months, that they've learned, got one month of learning that they've had to do 12 times. We're not really learning from each other. So to, so as to accelerate our ability to solve this problem as efficiently as we do in other spaces. So I think there's also a role of learning from, like you say, learning from the best practice. What do you think the role of the housing or property industry is to, to the point that we raised earlier in reducing carbon emissions? And how can they be well, incentivized? 
Yeah, again, you know, the property industry is lots of different industries. So, you know, there's different ways of tackling this in different places. I mean, frankly, there is absolutely no excuse for building a new building that isn't net zero carbon. You know, I mean, it's just straightforward. What, you know, And we should be absolutely clear that nothing will get through the planning system unless you've actually tackled right at the ground level, grassroots level. You know, when you're building it, do it properly. So let's park new build. I'm not saying that always happens, by the way. So, you know, and of course, there's lots of other facets of sustainability that I think new build has to take into account, you know, biodiversity and lots of habitat protection and all those sorts of things. But you could get the energy side of it right. Yeah. So the real issue is what's already there. And again, you have, you know, it's such a complex picture. The owners of commercial buildings, the good guys, are really working very hard to try and do the necessary retrofit to improve their buildings. The problem is you've got barriers in the way, not just finance, but the landlord-tenant relationship. You can't start ripping a building about if you've got lots of lease, you know, different floors have each got a different lease, possibly of a different length. How do you actually get around that? How do you then make your tenants behave and use the kit you put in to make it energy efficient and use it properly? So that's the challenge on the commercial side. On the residential side, the stuff that's already built, again, you have this huge diversity. You've got home ownership, Every man's home is his castle. He'll do what he wants, he or she wants in their home. Thank you very much. Nobody's going to tell them. How do you get through to them? And then you've got the whole rental, both social and private side of things, where you have some landlords who are very, very responsible, trying very hard to improve the homes they own. But unfortunately, quite a lot of the rental market is a cottage industry. People own one or two. They can't afford to put in the systems. So there's going to be a different answer for different parts of that, and it'll be different players in in each part of it. But you're going to need some help, either at the central government or local government level, to set a framework in which these people can actually then deliver what, frankly, only they can deliver, what central and local government won't ultimately be able to deliver. Yeah. No delivery, <laughs> just a small challenge then. And um, just <laughs> what are the economic implications of reducing carbon emissions in housing, and how are they being addressed or even understood by both? By, I think because since you have sort of both the public sector and the private sector, it'd be interesting to see if there's a difference as well between you know the costs, the economic implications of reducing carbon emissions in housing as it's seen publicly and privately. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it's very, I know from the experience of trying to convince my own other half about this, actually, that it is very difficult, you know, to persuade people to spend what would say putting solar PV cost and the fact that how many years will it then take you to pay back, you know, and even leaving aside the practicalities of getting it done and being worried about the the sharks that turn up on your doorstep and say they'll do it for you, you know, you're not going to, you're not going to agree to that, you know, finding a method to actually make it happen, but actually convincing people it's worth making that investment because over a 10, 15, 20 year period, they will actually get payback. So again, I think you've got to have a really good, strong sort of communications plan. I think this is one of the reasons the Green Deal failed. There was no sort of communication plan around it to show people how it would work. I I think it was fundamentally flawed anyway, but we won't go there. So you really got to have some very simple arguments about why economically it is in your interests to do this. Then, of course, there is this broader issue of, you know, how do you set a number on either sort of social or sustainable stroke environmental value? 
And how do you persuade people to care about that? You know, that actually, okay, this may not enhance the value of your house, but maybe in 20 or 30 years time, you know, you will want to be able to tell your children you did the best for the environment. Is that an argument that would actually appeal to people? How do we make it appeal to people? Very, very difficult one. You're a comms expert. I mean, you write, you know, you know how to convince people. I think that we need more people like you to actually be working on how to convince people this is something they've got to care about when they're worrying about lots of other things as well at the moment. And, yeah, and so people a, do care about social and environmental impacts. It's just, it's that translation from that into willing to pay, really, that I think I mean, the Green Deal, this was all about how do you sort of actually attach the cost of it to the value of the house, you know. And, yeah. and of course, that frightened people because we have this quite bizarre view of our home as an investment rather than as somewhere we live, you yeah. know, which is actually at the, at, the, at the basis of, I think, quite a lot of problems uh, in this country. Somehow people don't want to do anything that might impact on the value of the house if they want to sell it. Well, you don't want to sell it. You're living there. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just a, it's a quite bizarre sort of approach that we have to housing. But um, yeah. anyway, we're not going to solve that problem today. So, <laughs> Well, probably not, but I think it is worth discussing. So to your point about really, unless you consider social and environmental impacts that aren't, you know, they're not commercial, they're not going to show up in your wallet. Unless you consider that, often it is does not seem worth it. If you just look at the view that let's say most people can see into the future about 10 years, not definitely not more than that, then it just doesn't seem worth it. And it's always struck me that in the private sector, for example, the private rental sector, landlords are expected to pay for the works. Whereas in the public sector, they're still like social housing, still not getting it, I wouldn't say getting it right, but they're entirely funded, <laughs> like subsidized effectively. And if, if you can't get it right when you're being subsidized, then it's much harder in the private sector. And in any case, it's a big problem that we all need to solve. So I don't have that. Solution. I mean, I think it is a huge problem for private sector landlords. I mean, the whole sort of social sector, the housing association sector, it's not even straightforward there, of course, because I remember in my time on the board of, of Peabody when, well, in fact, it was we dealt with it by the time I joined the board, but the whole issue of bringing the stock up to decent homes standard, you know, complete nightmare, you know, given that Peabody had such a lot of historic properties. And we actually had to sell quite a lot in order to fund bringing the rest up to basic decent homes standard. We then, and one particularly interesting little project we embarked on was actually the whole issue of putting in solar panels at the period when the government was very heavily subsidising putting in the solar panels. It wasn't just for the housing association world, for anybody. And you got payback through this feed-in tariff and all the other things. But then it was so successful, the government cut it mid, mid, you know, so in the middle of the period it was supposed to run over. And so suddenly we had to stop the programme because it didn't actually add up financially. So we'd gone in with great enthusiasm. We'd put solar panels on every roof we conceivably could, but we never finished the programme because the government changed the rules halfway through and we didn't that's, get paid back. That's another big problem, right? You can't expect people to make long-term decisions if policies change every Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, you know, it was literally almost as silly as sort of there were panels coming from, you know, they were being shipped from China, I think they were being made in China, you know, and at the point the government stopped the modified the subsidy rules, the feed-in tariff, you know, people were sort of trying to cancel the delivery of these solar panels coming on ships from China. I mean, the whole thing was just oh just crazy and missed opportunity again. Thank you so much for that. We're coming to the end. I have one more question for you, which is, are there any success stories or examples of whether it's companies or individuals that you've seen do a really good job of reducing carbon emissions or improving the energy performance of existing 
buildings? Well, again, I think the property sector is a really interesting one because there's some very good, very responsible players, you know, who work very hard to try and do it properly. So, you know, some of the big REITs, they take this all incredibly seriously. They are, Landsec have recently sort of signed up to the science-based targets, the most extreme version of the science-based targets, which covers scopes one, two, and three. Now, that's quite something to sign up to you when you have a big and varied portfolio and how are you actually going to make that happen? You know, I know from my challenges in other organisations I work in, where you, particularly where you've got historic properties. I mean, the University of Cambridge signed up to science-based targets. How on earth do you deal with I mean, it's medieval. Some of the buildings we're going to have to modify have the challenges of trying to work on a, a listed building. Again, you know, the listing rules aren't always hugely helpful. We need some more clarity on that. So there are some good people with the right intentions who are working very hard to try and make themselves energy efficient, net zero carbon targets. But I think they deserve a greater degree of clarity and perhaps a greater degree of organised support from central government in terms of setting the policy, from local government where you can actually sort of deal with the local issues. And we shouldn't forget the funders, you know, how we need to do more work on the people who might be prepared to fund this and showing them the sort of package that they could fund without threat to the safety of their funds, but they could actually make something happen. Yeah. Amazing. Really helpful. If listeners want to find out more about you or follow what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, well, I'm on LinkedIn. I do tweet occasionally, but I'm very cautious. I'm very careful about tweeting. Because I do work for a number of interesting bodies, you know, so I have to sort of reconcile their various interests. But do follow me on LinkedIn. You can always find me through those pages. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, it was a pleasure and I enjoyed talking about it. Thank you very much indeed. Thanks for listening to The Return. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review as this really helps other people to find the podcast.